Well, we've been looking at this passages of Matthew, and we've been looking at these different stories of Jesus, accounts. Um, it's Matthew's way of giving testimony upon testimony upon testimony about this incredible, incredible visitation of God through Jesus Christ. Who wants to not just visit with you, but dwell with you. C.S. Lewis, in a book called Screwtape Letters, wrote this during um, right around World War II when all that was going on. And it's the, the picture of, of this demonic supervisor to his little demonic underling who is seeking to subvert this individual so that he would give up his Christianity. And it's this dialogue of basically how the demonic realm might work and operate to keep people from from knowing and experiencing this incredibly good God. He writes, There are two equal and opposite extremes in which to our, our race can fall about, de, about demonic activity. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Another author, unknown but very astute, wrote this. The devil always sends errors into the world in pairs. Pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking which is worse. You see why, of course. He relies on our extra dislike of one error to draw us gradually into the opposite one. And we have to keep our eyes on the goal and go straight through between both errors. We have no other concern than that with either of them. And to add to the confusion, In my opinion, I think everyone likes to think in their own pride and arrogance that their view is the right one. It gives you a sense of security. So if Satan can get even believers fighting from each polar opposite, I think he's won a master stroke and often need not have to even use the demonic force to engage in that battle. He can just go off and do other mischief. Because he can get the church fighting about extremes. Well, today's lesson, I think, raises some serious questions, which I want to, at the end of the, the passage of Scripture that we're looking at, just ask and have us consider. And maybe, again, you know, this whole series has, series has been, is, is in a sense, I've been just challenging us to kind of think maybe a little differently, think through things from a different angle. We'll be examining Matthew 8. Verses 28 through 34, it's the account of two men who are possessed, and in that sense, possessed meaning their wills are almost completely given over to the wills of these evil spirits. So the question I want you to wrestle with is this. What side of the error do you tend to fall on? Did all the demonic activity leave after Jesus showed up? You live looking and thinking that under every rock there is a demonic Influence? Are demonic spirits only hiding in third world countries? Is it possible that even in the U.S. 
people are still influenced by evil and unclean spirits. And maybe to what degree? Can a believer be tormented by an evil spirit? Do unclean spirits still today influence thoughts and attitudes and actions that lead to physical illness? Could an illness, a depression, panic attacks, mental illness, addictions, and the list could go on. Could they have some root causes that could be demonic or could they have some contributing causes that are? I'm going to ask you to think about that. Let's pray. Father, would you lead us and cause us to understand how you saw reality? And even though we don't maybe see it that way, would you help us to understand and begin to see as you see? Open our eyes, God, that we would not move from one end to the other, but we would walk directly through in a balanced biblical understanding that comes from your heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in this series on Matthew and these accounts of Jesus' healing. And we've been looking at these stories, and Matthew is listing story after story, healing after healing. He's talked about a leper being healed, a soldier's servant who is healed. He, he then goes to um, Peter's mother-in-law's house and heals her. And then after that, there's a story of a call to discipleship. Because the whole reason he's sharing these stories is he wants people to engage and say, follow. Matthew wants them to say, follow this Jesus. And so now, just a little bit ago, we looked at Jesus, the controller of nature. He stands in a boat, stills a storm. Today, we're going to look at Jesus, the conqueror of demons, who stills the crazed and violent minds of some men living in some tombs. And then next week, we're going to be looking at Jesus, the forgiver of sins, who heals a paralyzed man who can't make it to Jesus on his own, but needs some others to help his faith in that sense. And then after that, another story, a call to commitment. It's Matthew's personal testimony of how he began to follow. And then some stories again, another call. Well, I like to read this story, and, and as we look at the story, just go through and make some comments and then ask those questions. First, you need to note that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic writers, that's what they call the synoptic writers, all placed this event after the boat landed and the storm had been stilled. These two stories are chronologically, they go together, and all accounts say that. But as we look at Matthew, and I've said this before, Matthew is not aiming to give a chronological account. He is merely trying to give accounts of stories to lead people to an understanding of who Jesus really is. Another item of interest is that Matthew, in his account, if you read this account, it's much shorter than the accounts you'll see in Mark and Luke. In fact, in this account, Matthew doesn't even refer to the legion, the name given to the thousand or so demons that are actually exercised from one person who is possessed. He doesn't record even the desire of the, those people, those men who had been liberated from this, from this oppression and possession of these evil spirits who begged Jesus to follow him. He doesn't mention that. Matthew has one primary interest, and that is that Jesus has authority over all, over sickness, over nature, and over evil spirits. So let's begin, in, in Matthew, begin reading in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. Verse 28, when Jesus 
arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. Gadarenes is, is a district controlled by the town of Gadara, near the village of Gerasa, or the Gerasim area, which is about halfway down. If you look at the, the lake, it's on the east side where the mountainous area is. It's about halfway down. And there's been some confusion, because if you read in all the other accounts, they give different names, and even in your footnotes may have some different names. And I'll just quickly sum this up in this way. We are all familiar with how areas can be given different names, or there's a city, and it's called by that city, even though the district may be called different. It'd be as if someone were saying, yeah, I attend the Free Church in Wyzetta. Well, no, it's really in Plymouth. You know, the west side near Lake Minnetonka area. That's kind of what's going on. Two demon-possessed men. Mark and Luke only record one. Matthew records two. People say, well, you know, are these accounts the same? Or, you know, what's going on? Is, 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 is there some error here? But really, it's not uncommon for a gospel writer to record what he wants to record in order to make his point in the sense of, of what's going on. doesn't mean that one is false and one isn't. For instance, you might say, I saw John Smith in town the other day. I hadn't seen him for years even though both John and Mary Smith were in town, right? Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs. You see, they land out of the boat. And you have to remember that when Jesus was leaving that other side of the lake, the west side, he had been inundated with people who wanted healing, who wanted to to be touched by this rabbi who could somehow, who was so in touch with with God, his spirit was working, and, and these people were just constantly coming around him. And so at a certain point, as we saw in Scripture, he, he saw the crowd. It says when he saw the crowd, he said, let's go to the other side, get the boat prepared, they go into the boat. And so Jesus is heading over to the east side purposely. He's heading to a Gentile area for the purpose of rest and to avoid the crowds. He's not going around looking for demonic spirits. In fact, as you read the accounts of Jesus, what Jesus does is he deals with situations as they arrive, as he lives life. Even though Jesus wanted to take some time off, he gives you a good sense that when you walk in the spirit, when you walk according to, the, to God's, um, uh, you, you seek to be um, surrendered and, and um, open to God's leading, even though you may think there will be some times of rest, there are sometimes you move into situations where you're called upon to love, to reach out, to do something good. And so what happens, and you look at the life of Jesus, as he walks through life, he's not looking for spiritual demonic stuff. He just deals with it when it comes up, which is the same way the believer is supposed to deal with it. When it arises, you deal with it, which means you have to be able to see it if it's there. So these two demon-possessed men, they come from the tombs. They land the boat. Here's Jesus. On the adjacent side of the hill are these ancient tombs. They're probably just small caves. They're places where people would, leave, would put their dead and they would be sheltered, which is a great place for these demoniac people to live because they have a place of shelter. They're away from everyone else where they are living among the dead, so to speak. They're not like our kind of um, plots with headstones and things like that. They're tucked into the side of the hill so that they can live protected from the weather. And this region was predominantly a Gentile territory. It was known as the Decapolis, the 10 cities, these 10 Gentile areas. In fact, in verse 30, the presence of pigs, 
points to the fact that it's a Gentile background or area. Because it would be inconceivable for Jews to have bacon um, in their area due to their ceremonial laws, right? Coming from the tombs, living among the dead, gives you this picture of these people who are so alienated from community, from their homes, from their families, from their friends. They are completely, in a sense, cut off. And that is always the work of Satan. No matter what way it hits you, he wants you to be cut off. Jesus said it this way in John 10.10. The thief comes only to, to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have life in its abundance. And, and when you look at the nature of God, he is this incredibly relational loving God who has all existed in three persons who love and share and, and live in, in that sense of, of community. And the work of Satan is always to divide and conquer, to isolate and cut off. The work of Satan and his demonic spirits is to create loneliness and a feeling of abandonment. Matthew records, according to this, they were so violent that no one could pass that way. It's almost in this sense that they took on the characteristics of the very unclean spirits that housed their will. Violence, loneliness, despair. And whatever the characteristic, the demonic influence drives these people away from any sort of community. And destroying the very sense of belonging, a community that I think all our hearts crave. I was in San Francisco with a good friend of mine who has written a number of books. One of the books he wrote on was Community. As he was sharing with me, we were over by the Golden Gate Bridge. He said, you know, I was doing some research. It's, it's been interesting. It's found that, that as they were looking at the Golden Gate Bridge, which faces to the vastness of the Pacific Ocean on one side, and the other side it looks more towards San Francisco and even Oakland, and, and, but primarily towards the community of San Francisco. And he said, you know, they found that when they were doing research on this and understanding all the people who would jump to their death off the Golden Gate Bridge, which side do you think they, they, would, they would look to when they would jump? Almost 100% look to... The community side. They don't look to the vastness. They look to what their heart most longs for. So let's continue reading. Verse 28. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? These words, have you come to torture us, is very interesting because... It's not in the heart of God to torture anyone. It's what we often do with our own selves. They were projecting what was in their heart onto God himself. They themselves had chosen that in the same way. When I talk to people and they say, you know, how could this good and loving God not somehow go after and do something and change this person? And I always say it's the same way as a person who is a parent, who knows you have a child that you love dearly, who's rebellious. You cannot force them in their heart, in their spirit, in their being to do anything they have to choose. That's one of the things God has given each and every one of us, this ability in ourselves to choose. So if you choose to say, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't really care about your reality. I don't care about your life. And you want to walk away. All God can do is confirm the direction of outer darkness and the sense of what the word of God always says hell is. And so these demonic spirits look at Jesus and they go, have you come to torment us? 
And yes, they will find torment because God will confirm where you want to go. These demonically controlled men who were so violent that they actually struck fear into everyone who went that way and passed that way, they knew instinctively as they rushed towards Jesus as he came out of the boat, they knew instinctively that they were standing before one who had ultimate power. And what's interesting is these ones who were scaring everybody else to death became victims of fear immediately. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe and they tremble. They actually use the title Son of God with full understanding when they use it, who God, who this Son of God really is, knowing in their hearts that he is the one who expresses God in his fullness. Remember, just a few moments before, the disciples are in this boat and the storm is stilled. They look at Jesus after the storm is stilled and they ask this question. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the wave obey him. In just a few minutes, these same disciples are going to be standing and asking once again, Whoa, who is this guy? Even a legion, a thousand or more evil spirits, violent spirits obey him. These demons weren't one bit confused. They knew exactly what sort of man he was. They were only shocked with one thing. Take a moment and look at that, those verses again, verse 29. They were, they were only shocked with one thing. Verse 29, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Here's the shock. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? That's the only thing that really shocked them. They knew who Jesus was. They just didn't know that their time of defeat was so soon. They knew there was a judgment day. They knew there was an appointed time. Our hearts know, every one of us, that someday we'll be accountable. But they thought it was still out there. Even the demons thought that when God showed up in the Messiah, the end was completely over. And in their knowledge and understanding, the end wasn't to come for a while. And what's going on? This Jesus, the Messiah, shows up in order to demonstrate his power to bring his kingdom now. His power, His authority, His love, His grace, His mercy. He brings His rule now into the heart of any person who is open to it and says, God, I want you to rule in me. I want this relationship. I don't want just a bunch of rules. I don't want a bunch of religion. I want a real relationship with you. And I want to know this. And God in Jesus shows up before the appointed time so that each and every one of us have an opportunity to experience this, to be able to change the direction in that word is repentance, to move away from the way that we have been maybe walking away from God or, or doing these things which we know are not pleasing to God, to move into a place where we can actually relate to Him in an intimate and new way and to begin to walk with Him in that direction so that we can know His power and His life in us. And even to the point of His touching our lives to recreate relationships, to bring healing in our marriage relationships, in a relationship to our kids, in relationships to our parents, the ability to come in to, with His power and understanding to begin to move in our hearts and our souls, sometimes so to cut off demonic influence so that He can physically even bring healing. To lead us into medical areas where we can find the gift that God has given us through medicine. He has come to walk with us before the appointed time. I, I That's exciting. That is so exciting, folks. 
We have something the world so desperately needs. And some of us don't realize that we have that because we don't walk in it. So verse 30 says this. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. And the demons, they begged Jesus because they knew his authority. If you drive us out, send us into a herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank on into the lake and they died in the water. The demons are asking for mercy. Luke tells us they're, they're asking not to be sent to the abyss. Revelation 20 verses 1 through about 4 or 5 speak about this locking of this abyss someday. Don't send us there. They beg for mercy because they don't want to be disembodied. Spirits that are evil can only, they can't influence unless you allow them to influence your will, your thinking, your attitude, your heart, your mind. They need a body. They're like bloodsuckers. And they beg for mercy. And they go into the pigs. And you can read commentary after commentary that asks, why would Jesus do this? Don't you think, why? It's like I tell um, individuals that I've counseled recently with regard to suicide or with regard to illness or with regard to things that come into your life. The why question is usually not a really good one. It's often difficult to know the understanding and meaning of it. Because to get into this, you'd have to get into the whole wider issue of theodicy, which is this whole idea of suffering and evil and how does that play into it. But So not going there. I'll just give you my guess is one is that Jesus comes, expresses the heart of God. What's the heart of God? The heart of God always is to show mercy. He even shows mercy to his enemy. They're not going to change their course, but he still even shows mercy. And I think here's a bigger reason, probably more so. I believe Jesus wanted to make certain for us 2,000 years later, as well as those who are watching, standing there present, that this evil spirit thing is real. This was not some hocus pocus. Just imagine if he would have just done hocus pocus and and these guys were better and they would have gone, well, yeah, you know, I wonder how he did that trick. There is physical evidence that there were things in them that were killing them that actually went into these pigs and drowned them. And they they could not deny it. Because demons are real. And they still do, to this day, influence people. And this is not some first century understanding of reality. Evil spirits still do torment people. Unclean spirits still do cause illness. You can go through, if you want to take importance, and see all the things that evil spirits do. This is not some reality found only in some far-off, prehistoric, tribal community. Demonic spirits inflicted these two men and the people in the area were convinced they experienced this. So here's the interesting truth. Rather than welcome this reality and to begin to live in this reality that Jesus presents. Rather than to have this God of all power and love and mercy move into their community and begin to work in their hearts and lives in a way that he begins to bring heaven down to earth before the appointed time. They chose to continue to live in it the way it is. With it in the way it is, no matter what the consequences. They were comfortable with the things 
the way they were. Verse 33 through 34. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. And they preferred pigs to persons. They preferred swine to a savior. Life as is versus life as it's meant to be. Because it costs too much. It costs us too much to live in the reality of the kingdom. To not go to extremes. But to live in this this incredibly tender place where you walk with a God who's real, who has His Holy Spirit, who speaks through His Word, who uses a community of believers to speak into your life and do things that only He can do. Because we always want to be on one side or the other. We want to control or we want to control. It doesn't matter which world, whether materialist or magician, both of them are controls. But this, this life of pure surrender and submission and, and, and moving into a place where you say, Jesus, I want to see reality the way you see it, calls for a whole different response to living. It calls for ways that change your own life, the way that you live where you work, the way that you live with the person that you're married to, the way that you live with regard to your children. It doesn't change you automatically. You still do things that are selfish. You still have all kinds of patterns. I do, I should say. Maybe I should say me. Because I know this. And yet, you invite a holy, loving God into your life through relationship where you begin to, through prayer. When we make prayer this thing that you just do out here, prayer is this sense of getting to hear and to listen and to know Him so that it becomes, as Paul says, a constant revelation and understanding of walking in His presence and and beginning to understand and see Him so that when you begin to do those things and you take that time and you begin to look and you go, boy, I can't do this again. This pattern continues. So God, you need to begin to deal with me and I need to choose not to ignore or an arrogance think I'm okay, but I need to deal with this. Because I want the view of Jesus in my life. I want His reality. So here's three questions that I want to ask you. Does your reality match up to the reality that Jesus presents? Matthew is constantly driving us back to a biblical understanding of life. What I call a Jesus view of reality. He is constantly forcing us to examine our accepted, what I call scientific, rationalistic worldview. The view of reality that we have all been trained in, the view of reality that we have been surrounded with from the day we were born, the view of reality that infiltrates everything we do and how we think. And and the only way you get a different view of reality is you invite Jesus and through his word to begin to speak to you and begin to challenge those things. And even that, folks, is a very difficult process because our assumptions are so deeply laid within us. And so my challenge to you this week Are you influenced more by God's word and the view that Jesus gives of reality, including how you understand illness, than you are by our Western scientific rationalistic view of life? And I'm not throwing away all the things that have been helpful in that view of reality. We've made great advances. But is it possible we don't see demonic activity and the influence of unclean spirits because we choose to exclude them from our learned look at reality? Could it be that we're so immersed in our cultural worldview that we don't see the reality that Jesus lived in and presents to us through these stories? 
I'm going to share just a couple of stories to highlight how this works, how you're trained to see what you want to see. I've used this before, but I'm going to use it again. Acts 28, Paul's shipwrecked. He's going on his way to Rome where he's going to potentially be imprisoned. He'll be put on trial. The storm comes up, the ship gets wrecked. They're on the island of Malta among all these villagers who are pretty prehistoric in their understanding. It's raining, it's wet, they go build a fire. Paul, it says in... In chapter 28, here's the words from the word of God. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and he put it on a fire. A viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. And when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. And the people expected him to swell up and suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their mind according to their worldview, and they began to say, he's a God. How many of us would do that? We've watched enough CSI, so on the first example, we would not necessarily go that there's some bad turn of events means he must be guilty. We would look for the evidence, right? And then on the other hand, if somehow the the snake fell from his arms and he didn't swell up and he didn't die, we would not begin to start concluding that he must be a god. We would probably think to ourselves very, very sincerely, that must have been an old snake, Lucky Paul. The venom was probably not existing any longer. Or that snake had some some kind of genetic mutation. It's not going to make it through the survival of the fittest because it's impotent. Or somehow Paul was probably bit at some point earlier in his life and he now has the immunity. And the scripture just doesn't want to tell us that. But scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says this. This is the Jesus view of reality. God intervened. He actually intervened and he, he stopped this from being a death by a viper who had full venom. Because there's a God who loves you and does intervene. The why question and when I don't know. But that's God's view of reality. Let me give you another one. Acts chapter 12. I've shared this story before. I think it's a great story. It's about King Herod. He, he executes James, one of the leaders of these new believers in the city of Jerusalem after Jesus had been resurrected. They're causing a pain to him, not because he's some kind of Jewish fanatic believer, religious person, but because of the political turmoil. So he executes James. He arrests Peter and he throws him in prison with the intention of of actually executing Peter. And all the people know it that Peter's done for. There's a prayer meeting at the house of Mary, the mother of John. There's many people gathered. As they're praying, God sends an angel to the prison and he frees Peter. Miraculous intervention again. Peter goes to Mary's house where he knows they're praying, finds out that's where they're praying. He knocks at the outer door. Here's scripture again. Peter knocked at the outer entrance. And when Rhoda came to answer the door and recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. She hears Peter. She probably even sees him standing out there behind the gate. Gets so excited. Peter's here. We've been praying for his release. There's no way it's going to happen. She runs back down. She tells everyone Peter's here. And listen to what they say. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. How many here would conclude that? 
We don't live, we live with an excluded middle. We don't believe in demonic spirits and we don't believe in angelic influence. We live with the sense that God's there, the heavens are up there, we have this physical earth and, and we don't understand. One of the most important things that the Word of God wants us to understand, that you will see what you believe, what you've been trained in to see, that's what you're going to look for. Everyone who does, who, who studies knows this. One of the first things you always do when you study a subject, hopefully, is you say, what's my assumptions? And are they accurate? As best I can be clear. So let me ask you again. If someone came to you and they said, baby, your illness could be the result of some demonic influence. Don't even know what degree. Maybe it's causal. Maybe it's some conditions. Who knows? Would you quickly dismiss it? Is that even a possibility in your view of reality? Do you know that the Bible teaches that first and foremost, we are spiritual beings? We are spiritual beings with a physical body. I was reading in, in this, uh, I ordered this book on, on scientific evidential things and deordered for me. And it came, it, I, I was thinking it's getting one book that you got, the children's book, which was really wonderful for me. Because <laughs> it has a little illustration in a box, like reading cartoons. And it says, you know, if you pick your, um, you know, one atom at a time from your body, you'll find that you will have this small sense of atomic dust that never has lived. Seriously, folks, we are spiritual beings, and what comprises us, if you pick one with a tweezer atom at a time, is this small little bit of atomic dust that has no life in it. So if this is true, do you believe that we live within a spiritual realm? Is there this excluded middle in your life, or is it real? Do you believe that it is possible to open doors to our will to be influenced by purely spiritual beings, which Jesus called evil and unclean spirits? I had a professor when I was beginning to get confronted, where I was actually dealing with some demonic stuff in a prior ministry that I began in my doctoral courses. I saw this one called Spiritual Warfare, and I thought, I'm going to take it with Dr. Tim Warner. He had just returned from the mission field where he had saw firsthand activity of demonic stuff, unclean spirits causing illnesses. And then he began, as he came back here and began to teach at Trinity Seminary, he saw that the similar things were happening to people. So he writes this book called Spiritual Warfare. And he says, there can be little doubt that there is sometimes a connection between demonic activity and disease. And then he gives a story of, of, of this example of how um, this person had... Oh, I won't go into it. But he writes this, the inner working of the emotional, spiritual, and physical aspects of human life are admittedly intricate, and it is difficult to identify which one may be predominant in any given situation. The problem in many cases is that our spiritual nature is ignored in dealing with human suffering. Since, however, the real person is essentially a spiritual being in the image of God, there is no part of life which can be rightly treated as not related to the spiritual nature or to the spirit world. Our secularized worldview, which at best treats the spiritual realm as otherworldly and not necessarily related to the physical body, has often eliminated an essential element in the healing process. It has allowed Satan to use his his limited power to achieve results out of proportion with the power that he actually has because the kingdom of God is coming. And my point is simply to cause you to think through your view of reality. The one that Jesus seems to constantly confront us with. Nothing, I believe, has changed since the days of Jesus when it comes to demonic activity affecting the human body and human life. As Dr. Warner writes, I assume the New Testament is accurate when it states that one-third of the healings by Jesus recorded in the Gospels involve some kind of dealing with demonic spirits. 
And you might be asking yourself, well, how can this be if I'm a believer? Because, folks, we, I just have to share with you, um, the second question I wanted to ask is, do you understand the influence of the demonic? I don't think we do. I don't think we're essentially guided by, the, by God's word, and some of that is due to translation stuff. The NIV translates the Greek word demon possession, which gives the idea of space or place. You think of something being housed. Rather than one's will, which is influenced from degree to degree, it always gives the idea of worst case scenario, what we saw in this story here, that someone is just deranged and living in, a, in the tomb. The word in the Greek is really demonized. The idea is more the sense of influence, not of space. Wayne Detzler in the New Testament words in today's language says, the Greeks had a word to describe the state of being demon-possessed, which was demonitsai, daimonitsai. Employing the word possession to translate the word daimonitsai, which literally means demonized in the Greek New Testament, is unfortunate, if not unwarranted, when indicating the relationship the spirits of evil have upon the human spirit. Another commentator states this, we've obtained our English word demon by transliterating the word in Greek daimon. We should have done the same thing with the Greek word daimonitsai. It's a verb form of the same Greek root. And it would come into the English as demonize. And we could speak then of one which in a spiritual realm has the degree to influence a person. Now, I just want to ask one other question and end with a story again from someone from our congregation. All this stuff is one you don't need to be afraid of. The demons knew that God has all power. It's not about that. We don't go looking for it. We don't, when it comes up and God begins to reveal it or we come into situations, what he calls us to do is to pray. And that's what I want to ask you to do. Are you willing to pray and discern? Are you willing to seek God's view on the reality presented to you at each and every time in your life? Dr. Warner again mentions in Luke 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable. To show them that they should always pray and and never give up. Faith doesn't seem to be the issue of the parable. It was the dogged persistence of the widow against an adversary. And based on this model, he writes, prayer becomes finding the will of God and insisting on it against the enemy. Now, I'm going to share with you a story. I'm not saying this is demonic stuff at all, so hear me there, okay? This is just a story from someone in our congregation who, who just the last week sent me this. She writes, I've been so excited by the current sermon series on healing. I have actually prayed for years that this topic would be addressed from the pulpit at our church. There's been so much great information and so many wonderful stories. I want to thank you. My heartstrings were tugged when you told Grace's story. I pray for the two of you and your girls regularly. And it felt the Holy Spirit encouraging me to share my story with you. And I just want to say so many have shared how you pray. And I so am so grateful. For several years, she writes, probably eight to ten, I had a pain in my back and neck. And as time went on, it became more and more severe. I always guessed it was because of my pregnancy. Unfortunately, my body suffered from a lot of trauma from four months in bed with quadruplets. Along the way and through the years, I saw a number of doctors, but there was never any help besides painkillers. Finally, one day, my neck locked into place. One of my doctors ordered an MRI, which revealed arthritis. He told me that I had arthritis from the very top of my spine at the base of my skull, down into my neck, behind my shoulder blade, and down further along my spine. I had several discs that he described as looking like they had been blown apart. He said that he had never seen such a bad case in someone my age, and I was told that I had 
the MRI of an 80-year-old woman. The only option for me was to have my neck fused in several places. After going to to two more doctors and getting the same story from them, I was devastated. By this time, I had a number of narcotics for pain management, but they still didn't touch my pain. My husband was doing the laundry, cooking, driving the kids because I wasn't capable of doing anything. I was not able to sleep and had no relief day or night. It looked like my only option would be to have this life-altering surgery. I was young, still had young kids, and I couldn't imagine having a stiff neck for the rest of my life. My family was stressed, and my husband at this point encouraged me to have the surgery. I told him that I was going to give God first, I was going to first believe God for a miracle. I asked my husband to give me 40 days, and then I would do it. I made it my full-time job, pursued my healing relentlessly. First on my agenda was to get alone with God and ask him what was going on. God quite promptly told me through prayer that I had a lot of bitterness in my life. I know exactly what the issue was. Some people had continually wronged me in my life over many years. Even though I had been mistreated, it was still sin for me to be angry and bitter, and I knew it. My first step was repentance, and a lot of it. I spent the better part of three days straight repenting of everything the Holy Spirit brought up as I was in prayer with him. I asked God to give me a plan. And that day, he started downloading a number of scriptures that I had already been familiar with, but he put them together in a way that I had not done earlier. Then I started to study Holy Communion. I knew there was healing in the covenant of communion. I studied and started taking it every day. My next change was to begin to make some positive confessions about my situation. The Bible says that our words have power. I decided to change the way that I spoke about my circumstances and to start saying what God says in his word. And I spoke out loud these biblical words of healing three times a day. And I just want to catch you real quick. Somebody go, you know, you're in this positive confession and, and you're into this. I'm not saying this is the case. I'm saying some of these things we discount because you go to one error, right? Let's stay in the middle because this person isn't saying that. Saying what God told her to do. She says, within one week... I wasn't positive, but I felt I was improving. I persevered, and by the end of the second week, I was totally pain-free. That was five years ago, and I have remained pain-free with no surgery. My God is so awesome. I don't believe that grace or anyone is sick because of bitterness or even because of sin, necessarily. I believe there are many reasons that we get sick. I'm not saying that I believe everyone is or should be healed. I don't understand God's ways. I am saying that I believe that many can be healed if they are willing to listen to the Lord and go after their healing. I just want to challenge what we might, might normally just think. Father, we thank you. And we, we enter, um, your time together here this morning with Thanksgiving because you are a good, Loving God, even though we may not experience it at the moment, we trust in the truth of that. And so, Father, we just um, commit our hearts to you again and close this service and worship to you in Christ's name. Amen.